This is Dollars and Change, a podcast about the intersection of business and social impact. Brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. Welcome to Dollars and Change. I'm Katherine Klein. I'm the Vice Dean for Social Impact here at Wharton, and I'm delighted to be talking today with Bobby Turner, Principal and Chief Executive Officer of Turner Impact Capital, Bobby Turner, Wharton alum, friend of Wharton Social Impact, and a uh, tremendous leader in impact investing. Uh, Bobby, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. It's uh, really great to be here, Catherine. And as always, uh, thank you for showcasing impact investing on the main stage, because uh, uh, truth be told, business is a force for good has never been more important to society and never been more rewarding as an investor. I mean, just think about what's happened over the last 12 months. Uh, you and I haven't seen each other in the last 12 months is what's happened, but we've happened that hasn't happened because we've had a global pandemic, an economic crisis, and a civil rights movement all at the same time. I mean, imagine each alone would have been a formidable crisis together. Um, we're watching it in real time. And I think that as you and I have talked about before, it's too soon to determine the magnitude of disruption caused by this crisis, but it's really clear uh, to most people that it's hit our most vulnerable communities of color and immigrants much harder than others. And it's also exacerbated the inability of the government to create lasting solutions because the reality is, is there's just gonna be fewer dollars available to spend on the social safety net of education, healthcare, and things like affordable housing. So, so Bobby, as you think of all that has happened in the world, we're going to dive into impact investing in a moment. We'll talk more about what you do at Turner Impact Capital. We'll talk about affordable housing. But I'm curious, as you think about a pandemic, a civil rights movement, economic crisis, and you know, a, a lot of hope right now that things are going to turn around, at least in the United States, as more and more of us get the vaccine. You know, how are you taking stock of all that has happened and where we're going? Are you what's making you feel optimistic, man? We've learned some important things and we're gonna do things differently, and what makes you feel pessimistic or concerned? Well, I think, Catherine, even before COVID, I think we could all agree that the country had been falling short on its ideas. Uh, I think what COVID has done, one of the blessings of COVID is that it has truly highlighted uh, just how disproportionately uh, crises impact communities of color and just how vulnerable they are. I think the crisis is also uh, enlightened and highlighted uh, to, to many Americans uh, just how disproportionately uh, these communities are and just how much that social safety net is failing. So I'm very optimistic that it has given, uh, you know, business leaders, corporations, thought leaders, uh, some extra capacity, some extra time over the last year to really think about what our responsibilities are as stewards of capital, as leaders in the community, and what the responsibility business has and what role it can play in helping address some of these most pervasive and pressing challenges in society. You just answered and you talked about the responsibility of business leaders. And I can imagine, you know, as you and I know, that there are plenty of business leaders who will say, you know, okay, fine, I good, we pay our taxes. Okay, fine, I'm, a, you know, I, I give philanthropy. Okay, fine, you know, we need strong government governance governments and governance, but this isn't my problem. It doesn't really affect my business. Well, they're, they're naive, Catherine, because failing to employ social responsible practices 
uh, does impact everyone's business. And a lot of that comes from the fact that today's consumers, uh, their form of activism is shopping. And consumers are absolutely voting with their wallets and purses today, which means that they are supporting brands that they believe share their values, brands that are employing social responsible, environmentally responsible practices, and they are rejecting brands that are not adapting to this paradigm shift in values. So I say to, to most corporate leaders in the C-suite is the failure to incorporate or embrace these changing values will lead to a reduced stock price and, and, and lower revenue streams. So everyone has to be aware of this. And as you think about civil unrest, you know, uh, increasing awareness among many Americans of, of uh, you know, racial injustice in this country. Again, are these business issues uh, that affect the business bottom line or are these kind of moral issues and issues for, uh, you know, well, reckoning in the United States? But business, not business reckoning. Business and morality don't have to be exclusive. I mean, the fact is, is the fastest growing population in this country are people of color and immigrants, and they represent huge spending power. Um, they also offer huge opportunity for businesses to, to identify um, misperceived marketplaces where they can capture great profits uh, without a lot of competition. So again, I don't think that uh, they're exclusive. I think that there is a almost a symbiotic relationship between profits and purpose. And if you do it correctly, the reality is, is that I'm in a unique position that over the last 25 years, I've actually proven that if you invest in purpose, um, you're actually your profits are driven uh, or much, uh, much more consistently, uh, much more predictably, because unlike most investors who are speculating on, on creating a demand for a product, impact investing, investing in housing and education and in healthcare, we're not speculating on demand. What we're doing is we're focused on markets where there's a huge existing demand, um, where the demand is strong and growing, uh, and where the opportunity is traditionally addressed by the government. And I think we can all agree at this point in the history of America, our reliance upon the government to tackle some of our most pressing challenges like education, housing, and healthcare have actually handicapped our outcomes and left us in the position that we're in today. So this is a good opportunity to segue into all you've been trying to do with Turner Impact Capital since you founded this in 2014. So Turner Impact Capital is one of the nation's largest and fastest growing social impact investment funds with $1.4 billion in committed capital. You have long been heralding the, you know, the interdependence between profits and purpose and saying, we can make market rate returns in, in pursuing market-based solutions, investing in infrastructure that makes a difference. So I'd love to talk you know, more about the nitty gritty of how you do this. So one area where you're doing a lot of work, you've just raised and closed a second fund is focused on workforce housing. So let's, let's kind of talk about what you're doing and try to unpack this. Start with telling us why invest in workforce housing? What's the need here um, you know, to drive innovation and increase access with regard to workforce housing? Well, let's start with the fundamentals. First of all, there's 44 million renter households in America. Uh, that's actually going to increase as a result of the pandemic and the economic crisis. One out of two renter families, Catherine, in this country are 
rent burden, meaning they're spending over a third of their income on rent. And one out of four, nearly 14 million families are severely rent burdened. In many instances, families spending upwards of 60% of their income on rent at the expense of food security, health security, and retirement security. So we know there's a huge demand for affordable housing. And let's admit and recognize that everybody suffers when you don't have workforce housing in close proximity uh, to jobs, to educational and healthcare infrastructure. So we know that there's a huge opportunity. The demand is strong uh, and it's growing. So huge demand for workforce housing, for affordable workforce housing. When you, you know, when you, I mean, it take, it's, it's worth our listeners, readers taking a moment and pausing about like, like a quarter of your income going to, to your rent does not leave a lot of, of, of cash each month to be paying for other things. Well, Catherine, it does come at the expense of food security, health security, retirement security. In fact, is it comes at the expense of hope, and that's not sustainable. So therefore, what's the opportunity here? Is it about, you know, is it about building new workforce housing? Is that what we need in this country? What is the opportunity you've seen to, to drive access to workforce housing? So I think that for the obvious solution is to get private capital and private developers to build new uh, affordable workforce housing. Uh, unfortunately, it's not that simple because given the cost of land and labor and finance, a for-profit developer candidly cannot build uh, new construction, charge an affordable rent of say 30% of the average median income and generating market rate return. Uh, the fact is, is in major, most major metropolitan markets, uh, these parameters yield less than a 2% return on capital. You know, again, the problem is huge, the demand is growing, and there is no new supply. So you looked at this and said, all right, we can't do this by building housing. So what has been the approach? You've been buying apartment units. How, you know, how does this work as an investment opportunity and how does this drive the kind of impact that you aspire to have through your investments. Yeah, I think what we realized years ago, you know, dating back to my original partnership in 1998 with Magic Johnson, um, what we found over the years is that while the demand for, you know, again, we call workforce housing um, is strong and it's growing, uh, there was no new supply. What was disheartening to us is the fact that the existing supply was shrinking. And that was because every time B and C quality properties or subsidized properties that were coming off the compliance period were coming to the market, they were being demolished by, by uh, predatory or opportunistic investors for new construction, or they were being purchased and they were being improved with things like uh, uh, sub-zero refrigerators or self-flushing Tata toilets. And those investors would get a return on their capital by increasing rents on the very consumer who couldn't see any. And, and again, while I haven't figured out yet how to build new product, um, we have come up with an innovative idea that's able to enable us to buy the existing stock of naturally occurring housing, preserve its affordability, and at the same time, generate market rate returns for our investors. And, and so, Bobby, I know from, from reading about your work, from talking with you, that a, a key way you do that, you're, you're buying these apartment buildings, and you've seen that if you can reduce turnover in, um, among your renters, if you can maintain occupancy, you can make a credible financial return. Absolutely so, agree. 
So let's all agree that if you want to generate a market rate return, but don't want to do it by increasing rents, then our only option is to reduce expenses. And if I've learned anything from uh, operating in the urban communities for over 23 years, it's that the biggest expense of owning workforce housing uh, is not real estate taxes. It's not deferred maintenance. It's turnover. I always say, let's be serious. No one works two jobs a day, comes home to a shoddy apartment in a shoddy neighborhood and screams the top of their lungs after spending 50% of their income on rent. God, I love living here. Fact is, is there's no pride in rentership. So our business model is based on a very simple idea that if we can create a pride in rentership by enriching a property with relevant community services and by maintaining rents at an affordable level, then tenants will stay longer, treat the properties better, which in turn will drive down maintenance costs, insurance costs, and economic loss, which enable us to drive profits without ever increasing rents, Catherine. So I want to I tease apart these two pieces. Talk to us first about the costs that you as, uh, as an owner would uh, experience as a result of turnover. Why is that? You know, like there's such demand, Bobby. Yeah, you know, you've, you've told us there's huge demand. So if, uh, if folks are moving in and out of your apartments, well, there's, already, there's always somebody new to move in given the demand. What's, this, what's the problem? What are the costs associated with turnover? And then let's turn to how do you cut those costs? So vacancy costs, um, come in the form of economic, we will call it economic loss that comes from turnover is in the form of vacancy costs, bad debt, uh, the cost to turn an apartment. And when you don't have a pride in rentership, it also comes in the cost of deferred maintenance and incidences in security. So we recognize that there's also there's almost a holistic approach when you don't have a pride in rendership. It's again in the cost of economic costs, um, uh, security costs, uh, and deferred maintenance costs. Got it. Thank you. All right. So you want your renters to feel this pride of, of of renting, this pride in where they live, this enjoyment where they live, but they're not going to be getting, as you put it, you know, they're not going to be getting this from, you know, from self-flushing toilets. What is it that they're getting in your rental units that's, yeah. that's going to drive their pride and it's their a great question. thing? So our, our whole business model is based on is our job is not to uh, improve a property, but rather to enrich a property. And so in practice, every time I buy a property, I set aside a percentage of our units and I actually subsidize housing for relevant service providers who in return for reduced rents provide essential services that help build a sense of community, Catherine, services that are essential for upward mobility and hope. So by way of example, the first thing I'll do is I'll focus on education. We're with the help of, uh, of our Turner Agassiz Charter School Fund team, one of our verticals at Turner, is we actually recruit teachers from neighborhood schools, often from the schools that we've built in the community, who in return for reduced rents, these teachers actually oversee educational programming tailored to our community makeup. Things like after-school tutoring for children, and maybe things like English as a second language for adults. The second area we focus on is safety and security, where our director of security, who's a former U.S. Marine, and then he was a retired gang task force member of the Anaheim Police Department, he goes out and recruits law enforcement agents to live at our properties. And in return for rent, these resident officers are obligated to park their squad cars out front, which is a real disincentive for drug dealers and gang members when they're figuring out where they're going to transact business. They have to live in the building, our law enforcement agents. They have to make their presence known, and they have to organize and oversee community watch programs. And finally, 
um, in the area of healthcare. With the help of our Turner Healthcare Facilities team, we recruit healthcare workers from neighborhood health centers, often ones that we've developed, who in return for reduced rents oversee healthcare programming tailored to the community makeup, programs like health fairs, exercise classes, and flu shots. And while I say our tenants are already paying a meaningful amount of their income on rent, none of them could ever afford to pay for these additional services, leading to the simple fact, unless our tenants have to move, they don't. And I like to say that while enriching communities is interesting in theory, let me give you some encouraging metrics. In the last six years, we've actually purchased 30 properties comprising over 11,000 units. To date, we've enriched our communities with over 100,000 program participant hours of education, safety, and health and healthcare programming. And to date, we've driven our tenant satisfaction rates from below 30% today, Catherine, they're over 95%. And while enriching a community and creating a pride in rentership clearly addresses the need to drive positive social change, what's most exciting is also driven strong financial change with a 30% increase in lease terms, a 50% reduction in crime, and a 22% reduction in economic loss, which means we've increased our NOI by nearly 8%. Um, without ever increasing rents on our underlying tenants. This is doing good by doing well. What does this mean for, you You talked about, you know, you've given us a bunch of metrics. What does this mean for occupancy? Because that and turnover rates seem to be just a key factor for you. And that's that intersection of pride and satisfaction and financial returns of I'm getting this right. So what is happening to your occupancy rates? Well, typically workforce housing projects experience uh, 100% vacancy every 24 months. Put another way, that people typically stay on average for 24 months. By growing our lease duration by a third, now people are staying nearly three years or 36 months, which drives down our turnover costs, our vacancy costs. Of course, what we've seen is because there's a pride and rentership now, people treat the properties better. So therefore, our deferred uh, and capital expenses are lower. And of course, they hold themselves accountable for behavior. And therefore, our incidences and in crime have dropped by over 50%. Sounds fantastic. Let's talk about how you how you measure impact, uh, a big deal in impact investing to have that kind of accountability. You've talked of, uh, some about this, of satisfaction uh, and other factors. I'm curious how you evaluate this impact and measure it, but also what you've learned and changed over time. I mean, you've been at this workforce housing for five years, six years as an investment strategy? Well, since our, my inception with Magic Johnson, it's now over 25 years that we've been okay. investing in housing and affordability in underserved minority communities. Got it. Um, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned um, is that two words clearly define the opportunity to invest in underserved communities, and that's arrogance and distrust. Arrogance from capital providers because we're well-educated and have money, we know how to solve problems, and distrust candidly from communities who suffer the injustices of social determination, who assume capital is just there to make money. So I think one of the things that I've learned is that the only way to effectively bridge that gap between arrogance and distrust is through diversity. And diversity today seems to be something that's very fashionable. It's very Depeche Mode. But diversity is not a check the box for me. Diversity is a competitive advantage. Um, and I've learned that the only way to do this is by building organizations that are from the community and intimately knowledgeable of the issues. Um, with this in mind, our diversity doesn't stop at race and gender. And by the way, at Turner Impact Capital, we're 258 employees, of which we are 90% diverse. 
meaning non-white men. We are 52% women, meaning non-men. But again, our diversity doesn't stop at gender or race. It expands to issue expertise. We're an additional to what I would call recovering bankers or financial engineers. We have former public school teachers, primary care physicians, and law enforcement agents who each possess a unique knowledge that's critical to identifying, quantifying, and mitigating the financial and social risks of investments in underserved communities. So let's talk about the diversity of your uh, your employees for a, a moment. You know, as you know, the uh, you know the investment community, investors, venture capital, private equity, investment banking. These are uh, you know industries and businesses, organizations that are absolutely dominated by white men. We look at the investment and investment professionals. This is a field. Um, particularly as I, as I was saying, in venture capital, private equity, dominated by white men. And there are many firms today saying, you know, as we've heard, we want to diversify, but there's no pipeline. We can't find people. You seem to have found people uh, at, at Turner Impact Capital. So how and what is your, what is your message as an employer to other employers in the investment, in the, you know, in the business of investment? Well, I think most importantly, it takes a commitment. Uh, talk is cheap. Um, and, and we spend an extraordinary amount of time um, seeking out innovative and unique pipelines of talent. Uh, for our diversity. A lot of it is word of mouth, but we also offer an opportunity that most money managers don't offer. We offer people the opportunity to do good and do well. It's an opportunity for a minority student or, or, or someone of color uh, or an immigrant to not only create a great amount of wealth for themselves by making it a great career turn back capital, but while they're making money, they're also giving back to the communities uh, in which they grew up. Um, so doing good and doing well is a very attractive work proposition, and therefore it allows us access to a great pool of talent that can't find those opportunities at the more traditional investment banks or banks or money managers. Reminds me of what you were saying about the business, the, the business implication of what consumers are looking for from businesses. What you're saying is, and we hear this a lot, of course, is that uh, talent employees are also looking for uh, to join firms where there's this opportunity to combine profit. I mean, nothing more rewarding than to get up every day and have accomplishments that are aligned with your values as a human being. So, Bobby, let's turn as we wrap up this podcast to the Turner Mint, the uh, Turner MBA Impact Investing Network and Training. Uh, you are a, an important partner, a member of our steering committee in running this global competition that uh, Wharton Social Impact uh, um, co-produces with the Bridges Impact Foundation. This is an impact investing competition involving business schools around the world. And we just saw the, the tournament finals with teams competing to uh, you know, gain an investment for the, the companies that they have identified and evaluated. Why was it so important for you to join the Mint? What is it... Uh, that you wanted to do and see um, by participating in the Mint? 
Well, again, if we go back to the recognition that impact investing has never been more important to society and never been more rewarding as investors, uh, we have to recognize that we need to educate the next generation of investors on how to be great impact investors. And the vast majority of business schools um, are fantastic at educating our students, giving them uh, black belts in how to create wealth, but not necessarily giving them the balance as to how to create purpose as well. And impact investing is the perfect inter- intersection between profits and purpose. And the Mint is truly the preeminent competition in the world that enables our students to get exposure to the tools that will be required and essential to being a great impact investor upon graduation from college. So let's wrap this up. I'm going to tell you what struck me uh, and really struck me from last Friday's uh, tournament competition finals. And then I'm curious what struck you as you were you know, watching and listening to these uh, uh, terrific student teams. And what struck me as an educator was, um, you know, kind of obvious on some level is like, wow, my gosh, what an incredible learning opportunity for these students. You know, these students working in teams are learning and practicing, evaluating the, the financial potential of these early stage startups they're talking with t- uh, management teams and thinking about, you know, how strong is this management team? Where are they lacking? Where what are they? Uh, what are their strengths? They are evaluating impact and getting, you know, being very thoughtful about, you know, whether this is healthcare in Tanzania or solar energy in I don't know where Nebraska. Um, just the learning and they're working teams and they're presenting. It was a really multifaceted, incredibly rich learning opportunity. I'd like to, I'd like my classes, my teaching to be as impactful as what the students experience in the Mint. So that awed me. Um, what, what, what were you left with feelings of awe or? Um, you know, uh, I, I was awed by the optimism uh, from these students. These are students, these are some of the brightest students that I've ever had the, 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 uh, the, the privilege to, to interact with in my life. But what really resonated with me was not only were they brilliant, but they were also wise, well beyond their years, recognizing uh, that it is really incumbent upon them to write this listing ship of social justice in the world. And I'm incredibly optimistic uh, that these are the leaders that will successfully use business as a force for good and address so many pervasive uh, and pressing issues that candidly, we as a society, we as a world have just failed to deliver upon with scalable and durable solutions over the last 20 or 30 years. To optimism. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Bobby, thank you so much for being with us. Fantastic to talk with you. Always a pleasure. Have me back soon. We will. Thanks, Bobby. Dollars and Change is brought to you by the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. To learn more, visit us at socialimpact.wharton.upenn.edu.